get started even though people are still signing on. But I just want to welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar, the colloquium. Uh, today is our last colloquium of the semester, and we're very excited for the panel of speakers that we have. Uh, and I just want to let you know that this was coordinated by um, some of the Ag Biofuse fellows. So I'm going to actually let uh, some of the Ag Biofuse fellows come up here and introduce the speakers and our panel. And stay tuned. We'll be sending out a list of our speakers for next semester. So thank you for coming in person. Greetings, everyone. The date is November 29th, 2022, and we welcome you to the 15th GS Colloquium. Today, we'll be talking about a special topic. We'll be diving into the edible South, the cultural politics of food and cuisine. This talk will be brought by Dr. DeSalces and Dr. Ferris. The, the history and cultural influence of food continue to impact what we eat, how we live, and what we do with agricultural products. Over time, foods are adopted to regional interests, but in the evolution, certain communities and their relationships with food may be watered down or even lost. We are interested in exploring how these transitions and the development of genetically engineered crops contribute to our relationship to food and local identity around food. So thank you so much to our speakers. And now we can introduce them by our very own Katrina. Hi, everyone. Um, today we're pleased to welcome Drs. Uh, Marcy Cohen-Ferris and Dr. Nikki pardon me. Um, their work explores the American South through foodways and Dr. Ferris's explores through specifically the Southern Jewish experience. Um, Dr. Ferris is the interim director of UNC's Center for the Study of the American South. And she's an emeritus professor um, in the Department of American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her work examines how evolving food cultures in North Carolina and the larger American South speak to the region complex history, culture, and struggle for racial justice, food equality, food sovereignty, embodied in the powerful voices of a contemporary generation of farmers, food makers and creators, activists, scholars, policymakers, consumers, and more. Dr. DeSauci's work, is, she's, so Dr. DeSauci is um, of our very own uh, sociology, um, she's an associate professor of sociology in our very own department. Um, she's a qualitative cultural sociologist whose research examines cultural and moral markets, consumer fo focused organizations, and the politics of authenticity and risk, specifically around food. And her exploration of food culture requires us to acknowledge the complexity and paradoxes of the memories, desires, emotions, and debates that flavor different dishes and ingredients. She'll discuss what a cultural sociologist lens brings to the contemporary study of food culture, focusing on boundaries and ethics as markers of social differentiation. Um, thank you both so much for coming and for joining us in this colloquium series. Thank you, Katrina, and also Christopher and Rebecca Brown. I'm so grateful to y'all. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here with y'all. And I just want to mention a few NC State colleagues who've been critical to my work um, for years and years. That would be Nancy Creamer, who I'm sure many of y'all know, the founding director of the Center uh, for Environmental Farming Systems, Michelle Schroeder-Moreno, who's now 
its director, uh, Matthew Booker, historian Matthew Booker, Chris Gunter, uh, helped me a lot with North Carolina vegetables, Sarah Bowen, of course, uh, Sarah Blacklin. And also I wanna recognize, uh, cause I know she's out there. My stepdaughter of uh, Virginia Ferris is the lead librarian for outreach and engagement special collections at NC State. So if y'all need to call on Virginia, because <laughs> she is fantastic. So today I know my question, I've got about 15 minutes is to talk about how food cultures and politics have changed in the South and Southeast over time. <laughs> so that's a big, that's a big topic. And who's been kind of left out of that story. So I'm going to just kind of hit moments to, to address this. And then also at the end, I was thinking about, you know, the, I mean, in my world, I was telling Rebecca, I really come from a world of local food systems and small scale farming and the local food movement. And so we talk a lot about Southern food heritage and land race crops. And I can talk to you a little bit about the, some, some of those and their evolution and how they're really impacting chefs, local foodways, you know, lots of different issues across the South. But I thought we'd start by considering really kind of what looks like to me, this historic Southern larder. Y'all know what that word means, a larder, right? A kind of 19th century word for what? What do you do with a larder? Pantry, a pantry, right? Like for storing. So we still treasure these foods. What do y'all see up here? Collards, lima beans, butter beans, grits, oysters, peanuts from Rebecca's part of the world, right? Yeah, sweet potatoes and ramps, ramps, of course. And those foods, you know, um, Carol, rice is in there as well, a piece of hot cornbread. The resilience of these foods, the fact that we recognize them now, uh, that we value them, that we still eat these foods, it really speaks of the power of Southern foodways and of Southern cuisine. And Rebecca, will you keep me on 15 minutes too? Um, a multi-layered past underlies these foods and explains why Southerners, and that's a big, broad, huge term over time, eat the way they do and why we continue to think of those foods as deeply Southern. Examining the South's historic food culture tells us about the region's economic system. And as we know, that's a race-based capitalism. And I can continue to come back to that, right? That is still the world in which we live. But it begins with that first contact between European colonizers and traders and Native American people in the Southeast in the early, in the late 16th century. A former student of mine, his name was an undergrad named Madison Scott, said in one of our Southern Studies class, the truth of the South is found in moments of collision. And I, I thought that was such a powerful statement and really find that to be true in the past and true in the very fractured present in which we live. So by the time Europeans arrived in the South, 
Southeastern Indians of the Mississippian period, about 1,000 to 1,500, were the South's first intensive farmers. An archaeologist at UNC named Rachel Briggs, I really recommend her work, argues that the hominy foodway, that's her term, a collection of core dishes that are made from nixtamalized corn, that was the staple food of indigenous people in the Southeast and later all people in the South. And y'all know what nixtamalization is, right? I've, I've got it up there, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it, you know, corn boiled in some kind of an alkaline solution like lime or wood ash, it liberates, I love this phrase, it liberates the chemical compounds of niacin and tryptophan in corn. It makes them bioavailable to our bodies. Without it, corn is not so, so useful to our bodies. So tribal numbers, as I'm sure you all understand this process, expanded dramatically with this reliable food source like corn. It led to that more stratified, uh, hierarchical political structures, chiefdoms, uh, and larger, more permanent settlements. But because of that, poor people, indigenous people also experienced health challenges. So the flip side to that, that increasing dependence on corn, what happened with crop failures, with food shortages, with malnourishment, with infectious disease because there's more people suddenly living closer together. And of course, working poor, we'll, we'll come to this in a minute, white and black Southerners centuries later would also experience nutritional problems that were tied to corn. So to understand Southern foodways, we really must also understand the relationship of enslaved people to Africa to the experience of historical trauma. And I try to think of any immigrant to this country, uh, you know, by, by challenged by the pain of slavery or otherwise who's not experienced historical trauma in their journey, but also African-American central role in food production in the South. Their voices of creativity, of resistance, of resilience. Okay, so those experiences of creative, the ideas of food and black labor, creativity, resistance, resilience, and survival, they're really poignant and expressive in Southern cuisine. So from West Africa, they carried a culinary grammar that's based in cereal grains. There's a lot of scholars now that are really important black scholars, largely who are doing great work in this area. And I've put up slides at the end of this that we can come back to if you're interested in looking at those works. But from West Africa, they carried a culinary grammar based in cereal grains like rice and millet, as well as field peas. I have to note the, the work of Michael Twitty who's doing great work on this, has done great work on this. Enslaved Africans brought their cooking methods to the new world like stewing, boiling, and frying. And last September, New York Times essayist, writer, journalist, Yawande Kamalafi wrote an amazing piece that I loved. And the title of it was, What the Food We Cook Reveals About Us. And she said, diaspora, some recent, others culminating over hundreds or thousands of years make up much of American cuisine. The African continent's imprint on it has inspired almost as much engaging scholarship as it has irresistible dishes. 
She said, the broader region I come from, West Africa, which is where most enslaved people came from West Africa to our region, has influenced so much of what we consider essential to the American palate, the Southern palate, that its contributions almost feel like a foregone conclusion. Ingredients, cooking methods, and preservation techniques I know from home, from West Africa, are all present in American cuisine. And then a colleague, friend of mine, who's a emeritus historian at the University of Mississippi, Charles Reagan Wilson, who's written extensively on the South, Southern history, he said, no other place has engaged people of such differing backgrounds as Western Europeans and West Africans over such a long period of time. The regions, whites, tried to segregate the races, but they could not segregate the eardrum, the eye, or the palate. And for those folks that haven't seen High on the Hog, have y'all seen this great Netflix series? Do watch it if you haven't had a chance. It's based on Jessica Harris's great work, High on the Hog, and this, it begins in the markets of Benin in West Africa. It's a really important series. So cultural negotiation, exchange between Native Americans, African Americans, European Americans, peaceful, embattled, creates the South's core cuisine. You know, this is a New Year's plate from this year for us, but it could be 2022, 1922, 1822, 1722, you know, 1622, really for this plate, plate of food. Um, that core cuisine, another scholar uh, that I deeply respect Charles Joyner, he called this, an ex that core cuisine of the South, an expressive language of place. So quickly after the Civil War, sharecropping and tenant farming comes to the South as large white planters divide up their estates, forced to do so uh, into smaller pieces that are rented to African-American freedmen and poor whites. Sharecroppers depended on store credit to purchase the cheapest filling food. So here's where we come back to that problem with corn, poor quality flour and cheap cornmeal shipped in from the Midwest, also pork, kind of the least uh, best quality pork from the Midwest. Field peas were probably the best things people could eat, molasses and dependent on canned goods. So you get this Southern diet that people in the 20th century, social scientists, public health docs, referred to as the Southern diet of the three Ms. That was problematic. It was studied at UNC, also in the sociology department and the public in, in public health. Meat, meal, and molasses. Meat was cheap cured pork, cornmeal, and molasses that filled empty bellies and provided calories. But of course, those foods were deficient in essential vitamins and the lean protein that's found in better grades of beef and pork. It led to hundreds to thousands of cases of pellagra. That's a disease that you know you're familiar with a disease caused by the lack of niacin or vitamin B3 in the diet. So black families who own land and farm were unable, and we know this story, to secure USDA crop loans and were denied access to government farm programs. So that's a long expression that continues even to this day of institutional structural racism that was locked into place of in that growing white supremacy of the early 20th century. And if you remember the infrastructure plans 
that President Biden was passing and that we were seeing during COVID offered to repay a lot of money back, but not enough money, but money back to black farmers as part of, of those infrastructure guidelines. At this time, thousands of African-Americans left the South. Uh, that's part of the great migration beginning as early as 1915. Dirt continues during World War I up into the 1970s. And it takes really into the Johnson administration, President Lyndon Johnson's program, the introduction of the Great Society, his campaign is War on Poverty. The policymakers in the nation began to see the hunger across the nation that existed within its borders. And of course, it's kind of set in Appalachia. And that's a whole nother story about kind of, you know, flattening Appalachia as this place and as Appalachian people as victims of, of, um, of, of these issues. War to their, you know, because of, of their own fault in a way is, is how it's characterized. It's really flattened. So national exposure of Southern hunger and poverty reached its zenith during a tour of Mississippi by Senator Robert Kennedy from New York and Senator Joseph Clark from Pennsylvania, who came to the Mississippi Delta in the spring of 1967. And we begin to see how the appearance of hunger and malnutrition really began to change in the South, in the rest of the nation. Impoverished low-income Americans back in the 20s had suffered from a lack of calories in the 30s, the absence of food. That transitions to, what do we see? Obesity, right? Too many calories as a result of cheap processed food with little or no nutritive value. And I'll, I'll just kind of wrap up here, but y'all know this story well. By the 1980s, farming across the South was really synonymous with big poultry, turkey, chickens, egg. This is certainly the case in North Carolina and big pork for sure. Uh, besides pork in North Carolina, agribusiness now really dominates soybean and peanut production, as well as sweet potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, and cucumber. Our workers, our field workers became Mexican and Central American uh, field workers, immigrants, um, and they're the predominant labor force for large agro processors, particularly out in Eastern North Carolina. And a generation, a little earlier, a generation of young people in the 1970s and the 1980s responded to industrial agriculture and this heavily processed American diet with small scale farming, a vision of local sustainable foods supported by farms, new food venues, farmers markets, that's when our farmers markets, not the state farmers market, but smaller farmers markets like that in Carborough, it started in this era. CEFs begins 25 years ago here on, on the campus. So in the 1990s, local partnerships between these farmers and chefs were crucial to the birth of what folks in my area called New Southern cuisine, uh, not old Southern, new Southern cuisine uh, in the 1980s, a regional expression of that kind of nascent farm to table movement that was launched by Alice, Chef Alice Waters in California in the 1970s, who of course owned and founded Chez Panisse in uh, Berkeley. 
And also we saw that in the American South, the seminal voices of people like Chef Ryder, Edna Lewis, uh, an amazing uh, African-American cook, chef, writer, uh, Frank Stitt in Alabama, and Bill and Mort Neal here in, in the Piedmont in North Carolina. So we know today Southern foodways have been transformed by the labor, the vision, the creativity of a new generation of immigrants, Asian, Latinx, immigrants from, from India, from South Asia have come to the South following the 1965 passage of legislation that altered immigration quotas in America. And today now second and third generation immigrant Southerners or whose parents were immigrants are now food entrepreneurs, owners, restaurant owners, journalists, policymakers, scholars, strong stakeholders in their food communities. Y'all know I hope a little bit about the growth of food studies across the region, uh, particularly in the, in, in the interest in Southern foodways is really flourishing. Uh, even at, at UNC, we created a food studies minor and many of our doctoral students across the university work in studying different aspects of, of, Southern, of Southern food issues. And so today I'll stop here, but the Southern small, the Southern small scale local food movement that I study is largely led by a next generation of young and mid-career people, including more and more women and people of color, black, indigenous, um, uh, among its leaders. And if we have time, I'll talk a little bit later about some of those, those crops, but should we switch to Thank you. Oh, it doesn't. It actually doesn't really matter, but that's fine. Right there. Okay. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm sorry, my slides are not as pretty. <laughs> that um, I put them together last night after my boys finally fell asleep. So. Um, so my name is Michaela DeSusi, and I'm an associate professor of sociology here at NC State. I've been here for 10 years. Um, and what I was hoping to do since my, the research I've done so far in my career has not specifically been about Southern food ways, um, just, just a few reflections on, you know, how I think my perspective can add to this conversation. Um, I got my PhD in sociology at Northwestern University, where I went to do cultural sociology and ended up doing a lot of work in organizations um, and organizational theory as well over at Kellogg Business School. Um, when I got to Northwestern in 2002, I said I wanted to study culture and food, and people looked at me like I had four heads. Um, and 
what are you doing here? How does how is food a topic for study? And how are we going to get this girl a job? Um, and somebody who ended up being on my dissertation committee willingly, um, who volunteered for it, in fact, um, told me um, and has stayed a friend since told me that um, she, I convinced her. I mean, it wasn't just me. I mean, I think the, the early 2000s with Michael Pollan's book coming out and Food Inc. and seeing the explosion of interest in the local food movement um, also helped convince her um, that this was something worth studying through a cultural lens, through the lens of social movements, through the lens of organizational politics. Um, so my research and teaching for the most part um, since, since then has been centered around the question of why do people fight about food? Uh, how and how do they do it? Um, the, the, the topics that tend to draw my attention and get me interested are things I see that don't make any sense to me. And I want to figure out why or how. And so, um, the dissertation that I did, which turned into my first book, which was mentioned before, is about the politics of foie gras in the US and France. Um, I had no idea what foie gras was when I got to graduate school, um, but I quickly learned when it became a touchstone of moral and political contention in the Chicago food scene. Um, and I had that moment of, oh, I'm gonna get to go to France for a while for my dissertation. Yes. Um, I, my, my early, my master's thesis, my master's paper was about the local food movement and um, controversy around the organic label. Um, I started grad school right at the time that the USDA um, institutionalized the label. And I was curious in how, to know how people who'd been doing these practices thought about it, um, how they accepted it or didn't accept it, what they were doing to adjust their practices or um, market themselves as being part of this movement, but also part of the market. Um, and so got involved with the local food scene in Chicago um, throughout my time there. So what sociology I think can add to this conversation um, and in terms of studying food through a cultural sociological and an economic sociological lens, um, is to think about how a lot of the things that um, Marcy just talked about could be thought about as uh, practices, processes, um, institutions, and um, how that works in terms of thinking about social organization. Um, in general, sociology teaches us about human groups and human interaction, both from, from micro level interpersonal interactions through macro level nations interacting at the global scene. Um, how all of this works and how it influences our lives. Um, cultural sociology investigates the meanings that people attach to those objects, those groups, those interactions. Um, what do they mean? Where do those various meanings come from? How are they shaped? How do they change? Um, and how do they influence what we as individuals, as groups of all shapes and sizes, as communities, large and small, as nations and regions do? And so cultural sociology really offers a framework 
both of theoretical concepts, but also of methods um, to help explore these meaning-making processes. Um, I'm a qualitative sociologist as well. I have done ethnography and interviews and content analysis, archival analysis, um, and depending on what the question is to figure out um, what is going on in any particular situation. And so this meaning making could be about familiar things. It could be about strange or unusual things. It could be about what gives us comfort or what provides, what um, causes conflict um, or anywhere in between. So my work so far has mostly centered on um, what I call gastropolitics. Um, so gastropolitics to me is both small politics and small P politics and big P politics. Um, conflicts and debates about people deciding how to exist together and seeking to achieve particular goals. Um, and then in terms of national and international dynamics where certain foods can become touchstones of moral and political contention. I mean, foie gras is but one example of um, a food object that has caused consternation um, over time and around the world. Um, and this is so relevant, I think, for this group too, because I mean, food is fundamental, right? But it's also fun. Um, it gives us pleasure, right? So why do people fight over who owns hummus or who owns feta cheese or who identifies with collards or black eyed peas or sweet potatoes? Right? How are the choices about what we eat and what, or what we reject eating conditioned by the social groups and the worlds in which we live? Um, and from that, how and why do some foods or some cuisines become ethically or morally laden? Um, more generally, what does meaning look like in action? And how does context shape it? And what are the outcomes? Right? How does it sometimes intensify group identities and other times challenge them? And so my work has sort of gone through all of these different iterations of um, theories and concepts. I was asked to talk about how cultural forces shape cuisine in the US Southeast. Um, and so applying that sort of theoretical framework to this topic, um, I mean, these are the things that I think about. Um, and that I've seen in the last 10 years of living here. Um, first is iconicity, right? What are the iconic ingredients, dishes, and why, right? Who has been their, who has been their promotion, promotional agent? Um, how do they get incorporated into new, new ways um, or new cuisines, new immigrant cuisines, as um, RC was explaining? Um, how do these traditional sustenance foods become desirous, become morally, ex not just acceptable, but desirable, worthy of growing and producing? Um, because as we know, foods need eaters to keep going. Um, and so where I see gastropolitics fitting in here is thinking about the sort of structural constraints around some of these producers and production production practices and processes, but thinking about them in the way of whose interest is at stake. Um, 
or whose interest is perceived to be at stake, whether or not it actually is. Um, perception plays such an important role in how we think about what we want or what we reject. Um, or what we think other people should eat or should not eat. Um, and so I was interested when you, Marcy, when you put up the slide of the three M's, the meat, molasses, and meal, why has that not become the traditional food of impoverished people to be something that is now served for $35 plate meals? Because we have plenty of nutrients now, why not go back and have a true impoverished cuisine experience, right? Why is it these other things that have gotten picked up and celebrated in the way that they have? Whose interest is that is, is being served here? And how, how is it that some of these ingredients um, by being promoted as traditional or authentic um, or heritage create boundaries with those that are not? Um, I also think um, soci cultural sociology's work on genres and categories is very relevant for thinking about some of these questions. Um, you know, what is this new Southern cuisine um, as the ingredients were put up, but what is included and what is not? There are plenty of other things that are being grown by small local farmers that do not get included. Why not? Um, wouldn't that be also new Southern cuisine? Um, why is it these particular dishes that have come to have these particular meanings that get brought out at New Year's and holidays? Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of scholarship recent in the last ten years, especially um, in the world of organizational theory and uh, cultural sociology that is um, about authenticity. How do we define authenticity? How do we conceptualize it? What does it mean to institutionalize it in particular ways or rationalize it in particular ways? Um, how do markets for authentic products work? How do cultural consumers value or assume values related to authenticity? And um, there's a great article by um, about food and cuisine and authenticity by um, Glenn Carroll and Dennis Ray Wheaton, who was, and Dennis Ray Wheaton was the food editor at Chicago Magazine for a long number of years. And so an organizational sociologist paired up with a food writer to go through and do this um, survey of restaurants and of cuisine, culinary types of things and, and divide up definitions of, of kinds of authenticity um, to really be able to get to start laying the land or the lay of the land, getting the lay of the land. And so, type authenticity in their world is like the traditional steakhouse or sushi restaurant or burger joint, right? That you walk through the doors and you know what you're gonna get. Um, there's this particular look, a particular ambiance, a particular aura, particular things on the menu that it's not just about like the ethics and the morality, but it's about being true to the category. Um, their other genre of um, authenticity is moral authenticity, which is about sincerity and the, um, the argument that the producer themselves, the chef or the restaurant owner is sincere in their desire to 
put forward the most ethical or, you know, um, the Portlandia chicken. Um, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, that there's a moral, moral level of um, boundaries about good and bad and ethics that gets associated with what we eat and who gets to eat those things and who does not. Um, when I look at what new Southern cuisine is, um, I see this type authenticity becoming a moral authenticity. I see the boundaries between them um, blurring in a lot of ways. That it's not just about the sweet potatoes and the collards and the cornbread, but that producing those things blends in with these ideas about morality and who is sincere in their nature of comfort and belonging um, in a way that it's not just going into the traditional burger joint, but there's something, there's something different about it. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting when I think about culture, cultural forces shaping cuisine, and you mentioned this, Marcy, is um, gender and the fact that this state has become, in some ways, going with iconic or the genre of um, uh, prestigious female chefs um, and how gender gets associated with new Southern cuisine in interesting ways. Um, so we have Ashley Christensen, Vivian Howard, Chidi Chidi Kumar, um, and then um, uh, Katie Button in Asheville, and how this has become sort of layered in terms of thinking about how, how our expectations become conditioned for, for what we expect from the people producing, not just producing the food, but producing the images of food, producing the idea of food. Um, also, in terms of thinking about food becoming ethically and morally related symbols, um, I mean, something that I've, you know, been aware of for 20 years now and been highly aware of here is the local food movement um, and all of the organizations that have been formed. I don't want to say sprung up because they didn't spring up. They were formed for particular purposes with particular interests. Um, like SAFs and NC Choices, the Got to Be NC campaign. Um, and where I, what the thing that I'm fascinated by, and I want to do this project, and this is, this was supposed to be one of my, like my post tenure project, and then the pandemic happened. So maybe it will still be a project at some point. But I'm fascinated by how all of these organizations are sort of underwritten by the Golden Leaf Foundation. And the Golden Leaf Foundation, for those of you who don't know, does everyone know? The Golden Leaf Foundation is the organization that was created as part of the tobacco settlement funds that every state got awarded these large grants of money as part of the tobacco settlements. Um, again, the, the lawsuits, the class action lawsuits against Philip Morris and Marlboro and those companies. And different states did different things with the money. North Carolina, channeled so much of that money into local agriculture, to converting small scale tobacco farmers to growing cherry tomatoes and herbs for restaurants because they're high value products you can grow on small bits of land, but also undergirding these conferences, the under, underlaying these conferences, these sustainable agricultural conferences, and how so much of the local food movement today is actually built on the found in the state is built on the foundations of 
tobacco settlement money? To me, that is a question that is worth investigating. And especially when we're thinking about ideas about heritage, whose heritage, which authenticity, who gets celebrated, who gets promoted, and who gets erased. Um, and so someday I'll do that project. Nora's gonna, Nora afterward, Nora's gonna be like, Michaela, do that project. Um, the, the, the phrase that I've had in my head um, since I moved here 10 years ago is the post-tobacco landscape. Um, and what is then happening with the agribusinesses that Marcy mentioned as well? What are the large companies doing? How are they striving to adjust to this new normal? Um, right before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to go out and um, tour Purdue factories um, and farms, and that was an eye-opening experience um, for many reasons, but in large part because of how they were very consciously aware of all of these movements for people's attention and dollars, especially among the people they hope to attract themselves. And so what are they doing to adjust their own practices to try to create new boundaries about what food does come from North Carolina? Because chicken farming, pig farming, that these are the industries that drive a lot of this state's economy. And so how do these sort of hidden in plain sight organizations and institutions operate in ways that are they're trying to become more visible? Um, and I think those are interesting questions for thinking about food culture going forward as well. So that's what I've got. Mm -hmm. well, Have to open the floor up to questions at this time. Do you want us to both be up here then? Both or? Can be. The, the cameras in this room kind of. Okay, what about for the people at home? The people playing at home? The, the cameras will focus on each other. Oh, okay. So do you want to come up here? Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, I loved what you said. I'm not, spent, I'm not saying your name. Michaela. Michaela. Yeah. And tobacco is, in this state, it is really at the foundations of the local food movement. As I was doing the research and field work for this, like Charlie Jackson, who, do you know Charlie? Who's I know the name. Founder of ASAP, the Appalachian Sustainable Agricultural mm -hmm. Program. He was like, let me tell you what happened with tobacco in, out here. And then everyone learning how and using that money from Golden Leaf. Mm -hmm. And that and I it yeah, you gotta write a book on that. <laughs> because that that's that's just fantastic. I um he said he did there was a great study from from ASAP and he said um that was focused on Western North Carolina. He said, while local food has not replaced tobacco as a means of livelihood for the farmers of the region it's emerged as a significant new direction for agriculture. And you'll, you'll go interview Charlie. Yes. He's fantastic. Yep. But few people really talk about, about that. And it's, it's really the key. Yeah. Everything that I've gotten from it has mostly been from little bits and pieces yeah. here and there and doing a little bit of digging in yeah. the special and the special archives. Yeah. 
great. And when you start to look at all these organizations that are founded here at NC State or women's groups, women's women's organized groups, uh, companies, nonprofits mm -hmm. like Happy Dirt and First Hand Foods, you know, that's been out of CEFs, they're all happening at that same time, you know, and that was one thing I wanted to do in the introduction of, of this book. This is a collection of essays about the contemporary food movement in North Carolina by 20 really terrific writers, but I, I wrote an introductory essay to try to make sense of that history of what was happening in North Carolina and the organizations fascinated me because I thought that's one thing that's been so grounding for the local food movement mm -hmm. was the creation of those of, of those kind of thought leaders and the funding that came yeah. for them. Right, to think about you know, the organizational environments at the time and then what was deemed successful and how others learned right. to build on those successes. Right. but yet all funded by dirty money. <laughs> so CEFs, it's Nancy's- Oh, I know. Funding came from Kellogg. Oh, I know. Right. <laughs> yeah, because she wrote the first mm -hmm. big, the first big grants. Yeah, and Kellogg Foundation has given probably more money to local food systems across the United States than any other foundation. Yeah. Which is fascinating, yeah. right? Or what are they trying to buy themselves at? <laughs> I'm a very much a proponent of follow the money. Yeah. Yeah. That's the economic sociologist in me. Yeah. 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 That's the social historian in me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can write this book together. Yeah. Um, there's just a comment in the chat that yes. says uh, it's from Zach Brown, who's a professor in uh, Ag and Resource. Uh, he says, FYI, my department is now advertising an endowed professorship at policy that is funded by tobacco settlement. Right. All right, I'll I'll be getting in touch with you later. <laughs> That's amazing. Thanks for your talks. Um, my family is very long time Southerners. So it's really interesting to sort of think about this from uh, an academic perspective, because that's not my study of choice, so it's just an interesting intersection. I'm also a qualitative social scientist, so I want to like introduce that before my question. I was really compelled by the comment, like nobody's talking about this sort of transition from tobacco to tomato and things, because my uncle is a former tobacco farmer in Green County and transitioned to tomatoes. And Would he like to be interviewed? Things. And so... So yeah, basically, like, it. this is the kickoff of my new research project, it sounds like. <laughs> but I mean, I, I'd like to know how both of you wrestle with this tension of, and this is not specific to this particular field of study, but it's here in this field of study of this, like, high-minded academic perspective and the sort of grittiness of lived experience mm -hmm. in some of these folks. And that's sometimes hard to tap into. It's sometimes hard to write about. It's sometimes... Like I get, you know, I guess my own, my own ethical quandaries around that. So I just want to know how you both wrestle with that sort of, you know, that tension between those two spaces. Because my first reaction was, hell yeah, they're talking about it. Maybe not academics. And so just really thinking about that tension and both of your work. So I'm all about the grittiness. Um, and the grittiness of lived experience, field work, getting out there and doing a lot of show me again. Can I touch that? What is that? Can I do it? Um, 
but also one of my, I mean, I guess for 20 years now, had one of my sort of the bees in my bonnet has been dispelling the myth that local food is going to solve the world's problems. Organic food is going to solve the world's problems. If we can just convince people to eat this way, then everything's going to be fixed, right? Um, and the grittiness, I think, is telling the stories of some of the producers themselves that the local farmers that I spend a lot of time with in Chicago for my work there, the grass-fed beef farmers that I interviewed about how they convinced a market of people to buy this product that most people thought was unfinished. Um, and then the time with in kitchens with chefs and not just fancy chefs, but like line chefs. Um, it's all about the grittiness and the complexities of lived experience. And so I think sociology and organizational studies and all that is open to it. I mean, people like the stories of the fancy chefs because that's, you know, titillating, but they also like the poking the bear. And so I'm, for me, and for those of you who are in my qualitative methods class, which we have in 40, 30 minutes, um, it's all about really uncovering that grittiness of lived experience and, and what is happening and why it's happening in the way that it is. So hopefully, hopefully other people will. They seem to like it so far. Can I say one, one quick, that's the whole thing is really the question you asked, you know, when I, I come from a background of social history and, and folklore, so that's really focused on, you know, a study of the voices of the people working with. So when I began the work on ethical North Carolina, I just thought I got to get out of my office and not be sitting in this chair trying to figure out what's happening across the state. And I'm not going to be able to cover the whole state, but thank goodness it was right before the pandemic. I had a year so I just went out and did a whole lot of field work, you know, I went from from east to west and interviewed like over 100 people. And some were like stakeholder leaders, but others were, were everyday folks. And those are the quotes that you see on in kind of the block quotes on the side here, because I wanted to make sure their voices were here. I... But I also was trying really, I was really struggling to figure out what the agricultural history of North Carolina was up to today. I could not find, you know, like that contemporary source that, that spoke, that had those pages about the transition from tobacco and golden leaf to the local food movement or to the farm to table movement. So I wanted to be sure I at least expressed that and that other scholars will now and are exploring it like Michaela is doing, but it's critical to get at who are North Carolinians. Does this sound, if a you know, does this look real, sound real? Is it familiar to North Carolinians when I when I talk about it? I, the work I was drawn from today is really based out of a, more of a social history of, of Southern food ways over time and the forces that you were talking about that have impacted how we eat, the political forces. Um, 
And, and in terms of small feet politics, we haven't even talked about Eastern versus Western barbecue. Right. <laughs> but, you know, when I, one of the first couples I interviewed was Alex and Betsy Hitt, who are dear old friends who were leading farmers of starting the Carboros Farmers Market. They have Peregrine Farm. They've just retired, but they're still planting it and growing. And Alex listened to the, you know, the names of the 20 people who were going to write. He said, who's going to write about everyday North Carolina? You know, who's, who's representing those voices of the people that, you know, that live around us, that don't necessarily come to the farmer's market, but our neighbors. And I thought about that long and hard, you know, when I picked, picked the writers and really focused on where, what, how they would approach this. In the chat, and it's from your stepdaughter Virginia. <laughs> How do you all think about a North Carolina agricultural extension and some of the early county level educational programs and organizations focusing on agriculture and food, educating rural women and children, especially in the context of what we see in North Carolina food systems today? How does this fit into the broader story? Yeah, well, it's it's so it's so important. Extension is still really important across the state. I mean, in the lives of the folks that you were talking about, right? But there's a a really deep, complex story of what segregated extension looked like in this state. Which women were able to participate in it? How did Mrs. McKimmon bring the, you know bring together uh, you know both black and white extension agents across the state? How did they begin to talk to tobacco farmers uh, and, and help them begin to make that, that change? I think of contemporary former extension agent, Charlotte Ammons, who has a great essay in Edible North Carolina about her Eastern North Carolina family's farming background and also working, you know, not owning land, renting land, um, working at Mount Olive, in food production there, food laborers. But Charlotte was a racial equity coordinator, you know, for CEFs and an extension agent, you know, to really try to work on uh, racial justice. Um, and so it's a, a really powerful archival um, resource for any work to understand the forces of gender and labor and technology and modernity and class and race, <laughs> all those, all those big factors. Thanks to time. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I could keep going. <laughs> Sorry, we just wanted to thank you for the very interesting talks today and remind everyone that this is the last colloquium of the semester, so we will be back in January, so watch your emails for announcements for dates and times. Uh, for that, um, but again, help me thank our speakers for our very interesting